tonight's thought. When does the American boy become the American man? I'm not sure, but I think I know where the journey began for me and probably begins for a lot of other boys and young men. It's probably when I got my first official Boy Scout handbook. Yeah, it says here in the introduction, Today you are an American boy. Before long you will be an American man. It's important to America and to yourself that you become a citizen of fine character, physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. Boy Scouting will help you become that kind of citizen, but also, Scouting will give you fellowship and fun. Yeah, I I anticipated getting this Boy Scout handbook all day, the day that I decided to join the Boy Scouts of America. Of course, it wasn't the Boy Scouts that I was joining. I I had to wait a couple of years to join that. Um, You had to go into the Cub Scouts first. The Cub Scouts train you to be a Boy Scout. And they have these packs that you join up with. Uh, Second grade is like the Wolves. Third grade is the Bears. Fourth grade and fifth grade are the Weebelows. And uh, I joined when I was a bear. I didn't have to go back and, uh, you know, do the whole wolf track. I could just go ahead and join as a bear. And uh, they had the Boy Scout handbook that I had to get, or I guess it was the Cub Scout handbook, actually. And I was so excited about this. This was uh, in the early summer. And my dad said, uh, you know, if you want to go and be a Cub Scout with all your friends, uh, yeah, go do that. And I'll go to Rogers Army and Navy store today and I'll get you the uh, the official Cub Scout handbook. Just like, yeah. And like, you see, I wanted to be a part of something. So bad. All my friends were go to birthday parties and they would talk about all the uh, cool things they learned in, in Cub Scouts, how to build a fire, how to build a tent, set up a tent. And yeah, the old cliche, you know, you would get a knife. So I've got a Swiss Army knife right here. This is not mine from uh, Cub Scouts, but uh, anyway. Over the years, I haven't really used my knife that much, except for, like, really one thing. That's uh, (laughs) opening up bottles. Um, (laughs) I've got some uh, cheer wine here. This is not beer. This is cheer wine, but... uh, my knife has opened up a lot more beer than it has cheer wine. And um, my dad came home with the Cub Scout handbook and I got it from him. And uh, it portrayed a bear with a Cub Scout uniform on walking through the woods. And uh, leading a, a, a troop of little bears, you know. And so uh, I got it and I sat down and I read it all in one sitting. I found out later on, you're not supposed to really do that. You're supposed to, uh, you know, meetings, you go through the whole book one chapter at a time. 
but I couldn't help it. I was so excited to be part of something that I sat down and read this whole thing. And then that night, my dad took me to my first Cub Scout meeting at the church in the Piney Woods of Alabama. Then there, all of my hopes and my dreams were dashed while I watched some kid's dad, who was the scoutmaster, stand there at a lectern and pray over us, and he told us that we would soon be men. Like, soon? Like, can we get this over with? I want to be a man, sir. And then we, you know, broke into our individual packs, um... You know, like the wolves went one way, the weeblows went the other, the bears went down to the basement. And we sat there for like another 30 minutes or so, and we learned how to tie knots. You know, we learned how to tie the figure eight, the double figure eight, the clove hitch. Um, and we tied them around little sticks and things like that. And I was like, okay, that that's great. That's it, This is mildly frustrating, but I know how to tie a knot now. And, you know, by the time I left, I had no idea. I had kind of an idea how to tie knots. But, you know, no, why, no idea why I would need to tie them. That's, you know. So it goes on here. Yes, it's fun to be a Boy Scout. It's fun to go hiking and camping with your best friends. To swim, to dive, to paddle a canoe, to wield an axe, to follow the footsteps of the pioneers who led the way through the wilderness. To stare into the glowing embers of a campfire and dream of the wonders of the life that is in store for you. Yeah, I went on a ton of campouts when I was with the Cub Scouts. I will say that. We went on a ton of campouts. I learned a lot of things, how to set up a tent in the wilderness, how to uh, build a latrine and, you know, use a log to kind of hold on to while you did your business out there in the woods, right? And I remember sitting around the campfire long into the night with all my friends, not really staring into the embers of the campfire, but watching them take Coleman propane canisters and toss them against the uh, trees to see if they would like uh, explode on impact. Yeah, I remember that. And it goes on. It's fun also to learn to walk noiselessly through the woods. To stalk close to a grazing deer without being noticed. To bring a bird close to you by imitating its call. It's fun to find your way cross country by map and compass. To make a meal when you're hungry. To take a safe swim when you are hot. To make yourself comfortable for the night in a tent or under the stars. In scouting, you become an outdoorsman. So my best friend and next door neighbor, Schaefer was a lot of times he was my tent buddy when we would go on campouts. He would stay in the tent with me. And, uh, you know, one morning, I remember Schaefer got up in his tent next to me and he announced that he had wood. And I was like, it's the morning. Are we making another fire or something? What's going on?
but scouting is far more than fun in the outdoors. Hiking and camping. Scouting is a way of life. Scouting is growing into responsible manhood, learning to be of service to others. The scout oath and the scout law are your guides to citizenship. They tell you what is expected of a scout. They point out your duties. The scout motto is be prepared. Be prepared to take care of yourself and to help people in need. The scout slogan is do a good turn daily. Together, the motto and slogan spell out your ability and your willingness to serve others. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, one time there was, there was one uh, particular uh, scout meeting where I went in the, in the goal of this uh, meeting was to recite from memory, the uh, boy scout oath, not the motto. The motto was easy. You know, the motto was be prepared, right? Well, I was not prepared to uh, recite from memory, the scout oath. Some of the students, you know, some of the scouts could get up and they could do it. Because they, you know, they're, I think, I don't know. I think their parents were really adamant that they be good scouts. And so they made them memorize it, right? Like it was homework or something, but I had no idea what the scout oath was. So I first had to learn it and everybody else, once they learned what the scout oath was, they could go in the backyard and cook hot dogs and things like that. And I had to stand in there for my scout master and, uh, Recite from memory the scout oath. Uh, it's on my honor. I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and to obey the scout law to help other people at all times to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake and morally straight. That's a lot. I was in the boy scouts, but I was 11 years old and I kept on going on my honor. I will do my God. God damn it. I think I, it's like, I eventually wanted to say to the scoutmaster, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm Catholic or I'm not, I wasn't raised Catholic. I, I'm not used to, uh, reciting things, um, that outside of school, what do you want from me? Yeah. And the introduction to the Boy Scout handbook finishes up. Your life as a scout will make you strong and self-reliant. You will learn scout craft skills that will benefit you as you grow. In time, you will develop skills of leadership as well. So pitch in, swing into action in your patrol and in your troop. You will have some of the best times of your life. Yeah, five years in scouting... And uh, all I really had to show for it at the end was the first place medal for the Pinewood Derby. You know, the Pinewood Derby, where you make a little racing car out of wood. And you race it down a sloped track. And I, I got first place out of the entire uh, Boy Scout troop. Of course, I cheated. Yeah, I put weights in the front of the thing to make it go faster down the slope.
Yeah. From Birmingham, Alabama, this is the Midnight Citizen Show. Live from the studio, I'm your host, Mike Booty. Thank you so much for joining me here tonight. If you're listening live, or if you're watching later or listening later on On Demand, doesn't matter. Our realities are synchronized. We're all in the same place together. Same time in the same place, in the same space. It's going to be a good show. Yeah, I've, uh, I'm excited tonight. I'm going to light a candle. (laughs) This is just, you know, this isn't just any candle though. This is a midnight citizen limited edition candle, limited edition, meaning there's only one of them. I only made one this week. Yeah, I used to make candles quite a bit and I uh, sold them. A few years ago, when I was trying to uh, raise money for my website, which uh, is mikebooty.com slash the Midnight Citizen, you know, I raised about 10 bucks for it by selling one or two candles and the rest I had to pay for out of my own pocket, but that's okay. Yeah. This is a man candle, a mandel, right? Very much in keeping with what we're going to talk about tonight on the show. So this is uh Nice little soy wax candle scented with a kind of uh, bourbon whiskey. Oh, I wish you could smell it. I mean, I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again on the show. I really do wish that uh, they would create a microphone that allowed uh, you to transmit scents over the... Uh... Why haven't we done that yet? We're sending people to the moon into space we still can't create a microphone that transmits smells that's really stupid anyway all right so i'm going to light this candle and i'm actually going to light it with this uh, zippo lighter which i've never used before tonight even though i've had it for about 18 years this is uh this is a zippo lighter that i got as a groomsman gift for my sister my brother-in-law's wedding um back in 2007 a Zippo lighter. It says Mr. Booty on it. And it's got a little Reservoir Dogs guy. It's like Reservoir Dogs, you know, like all the guys in that movie. They wear like black suits and white ties. Or no, black suits and, and a white shirt. And uh, they're all named like Mr. This, Mr. That, Mr. Blue, Mr. Blonde. Yeah. No Mr. Black. Because everybody wants to be Mr. Black. Uh, cause it sounds cool, but yeah, he got all of his groomsmen, uh, gifts. My brother-in-law did, and we were, you know, each got the same kind of Zippo lighter. It just had our name on it. So back then I didn't really have much use for a Zippo lighter. So I just kind of put it in my pocket and forgot about it. And, uh, and I lost it. Like one day, about 10 or 11 years ago, when I, around the time I had my first cigar, I was like, now I have time for a Zippo lighter. You know, I have the use of a Zippo and uh, I couldn't find it anywhere. I looked and looked and just for years, never could find it anywhere. I would, it would, I would be reminded of it every once in a while. When I saw my brother-in-law, I would come home and look for it. I never could. 
And then about two years ago, I get this message on Facebook from some random anonymous person. And they said, hey, I did a search for your name on Facebook. I found a Zippo lighter in a parking lot with this very strange name on it, Booty. Is this by any chance yours? So I come home one day and, uh, and she's left it for me, my apartment. And so I just, uh, put it in like my cigar box for two years and just found it again today when I was cleaning things and there it is. And I just lit the candle. Hopefully this whole place will smell like bourbon whiskey here pretty soon. That'd be nice. You know, I really resent the idea that uh, candle making is like girly or womanish or something like that. I know that in recent years, you know, companies like Bed Bath and Beyond or Bath and Body Works or Yankee Candle, they've been trying to make like candles uh, ambient again for men. Um, they, they've been trying to kind of bring back this notion that candles are actually quite manly, right? So, uh, all these companies are making, uh, candles that are in the, uh, scent of, for instance, uh, you know, bourbon or tobacco, um, or like fresh cut grass or something like that. I don't know. And, uh, I remember Yankee Candle had a big marketing push a few years ago for these man candles, these mandals, but, uh, it seemed like it failed because every time I go, I liked them. I would go in and get like a, uh, campfire scented candle. Um, and when I went back, when I burned the thing up, I went back to Yankee Candle and they, they weren't doing it anymore. So I guess it was like either a novelty push or it was like a flop or something like that, you know, but you, you can't really get men to like burn candles as much as women, it seems like. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because I'm looking at an article right here. Okay. <laughs> this is uh, from a website, um, called the art of manliness. Um, about, uh, you know, making your own candle. <laughs> no, it's, it's right here. DIY chandlery. And this is indeed where a few years ago I learned how to make my own candle. I found this website called the art of manliness. It just took me right to it. You know, it says like back in the day, uh, before there was a le- the electric light, you know, there was a uh, candle making was uh, considered a trade, just like anything else, like glove making, saddle making, you know, blacksmithing, anything like that. It's just like men made the candles, Right. So, uh, so yeah, this week I engaged in the fine legacy of candle making and it's, it's really not that, it's really not that hard if you want to do it, you know, if you want to make your own candle, you just get some soy wax, you get some wicks and, uh, you need a wick setter. That's the hardest part of candle making. I find is that, uh, you've got to set that wick perfectly in the center of that candle. 
and uh, it does not stay. Like once you pour the wax in, and the wax, by the way, is going to start uh, hardening pretty quickly. Uh, the wick will start moving all over the place. So you need like a setter, you know, to keep that wick in place so that it'll center and the candle will burn evenly. I didn't even really do it that well in this candle. Like I can al already see it's kind of uh, burning uh, off center a little bit. And the mat, the wax is melting unevenly, but uh, it already smells pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, it smells like um, it's like Maker's Mark, quite honestly. Or maybe that's just the power suggestion. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's it's good stuff. And, um, you know, you, you melt the wax, you get like a double boiler, because you, you can't really melt wax directly in a pot. You have to get a double boiler, something that like boils the water in one pot and melts the wax in another pot sitting on top of it. And you get it, and all you got to do is just pour your scent in, and boom, you just pour the scented wax into the candle and just wait about an hour and you know, you, you got yourself a candle going now. So, yeah, I, uh, I definitely enjoy candle making quite a bit. I, I gotta say, um, something I, I enjoy doing. Um, you know, in fact, this week, uh, my friend Dave and I, you know, his, his, uh, girlfriend went out of town and uh, he had some stuff to make candles. He had some wax and all that. And we were going to go over and just like have a day where we made candles together, you know? And I told this to my wife and <laughs> for some reason she laughed at me. So yeah, if you would like me to make you a midnight citizen candle, uh, please get in touch with me. Go onto the website, mikebooty.com slash the midnight citizen, uh, comment on this video or on this podcast. And, uh, you know, I'll make you one. I'll send it to you and everything. Right. Oh yes. But there is this obsession though with, uh, with being a man. Right. Yeah, it's a really in the past few years, you know, you hear things very popular notion of like having a man cave, you know, like a, a place in your house where you can go and you can be a man. I don't know what you do in there. Um, I guess I can consider this little studio here, my office here at my apartment in Birmingham, Alabama, a man cave. I mean, it's got everything that I kind of need all my toys. It's got my Xbox. Uh, I've got like a projector to kind of project movies. Uh, I've got my computer where I do work and I do my hobby, which is the show, this podcast here. I've got a nice chair where I can uh, sit down and enjoy a book. Right. Um, you know, I got my whiskey and my humidor back there. I mean, yeah, sure. This is a man cave. All right, fine. Oh, but, uh, I don't know if there's ever been like this, uh, major obsession with being a man in popular culture as there has been in the last few years. Um, I sort of think of it as like, uh, you know, when my, when, when I was growing up, I would observe my dad and my dad seemed to sort of, he sort of seemed to shave every day and he had a job. He was responsible, um, you know, 
he was uh, he was a man, right? And uh, it seems like in in recent years there's been like a lot of um, demand for kind of manly products, right? That this whole thing that would sort of complete the your character as a man, okay? <laughs> and uh, and I don't know. It seems to almost be like this callback in the way that some of these you know men these these people who are you know making manly products like certain shaving soaps like toiletry products that you can get beard balms you know you go into like the local craft store and they've got beard balm now um uh certain man flavored so- man scented soaps okay um there there seems to be this connection with uh kind of the early 1900s there um, around the time of the Gilded Age, and indeed around the time that the Boy Scouts of America was founded. I think they were founded in 1910. And e- even on this website that I'm looking at right here, you know, the the, the art of manliness. You know, it's got this logo up here that's got this um, you know, shirtless man with uh, kind of one of those uh, thin mustaches and kind of black hair. And he's doing like this 1920s boxer kind of thing. He's got, you know, one his, you know, one hand tucked back at, at his chest and the other kind of extended out in the way that those old 1920s boxers, you know, used to uh, used to get going. And all the artwork on this website is very much like old timey artwork. Like there's this old fashioned sketch of a guy making a candle here back in like the, uh, you know, 1800s or whatever. Right. And yeah, so, so that's, that's kind of the aesthetic of the modern man movement is uh, this callback to the Gilded Age, I guess. And a time when Teddy Roosevelt was uh, president, you know, Teddy, President Theodore Roosevelt, he was president from like 1899 to 1900, 1908. I believe I want to say, yeah, he, he came, he, he became president when uh, McKinley was shot and, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, kind of came to power and, uh, then he resigned. He only did two terms at that time. It, it wasn't really, you, you didn't really have to do two terms. As a matter of fact, his, uh, you know, uh, president Franklin Roosevelt, who was his what nephew, you know, he, he served three terms and then died. And so ever since then, we've had presidents only serve two terms. But anyway, that's getting beside the point. Teddy Roosevelt was thought of as kind of the prototypical man, right? Like him and maybe Ernest Hemingway a little bit later. But this idea that like Teddy Roosevelt was not only a very smart man, he was not only very intellectual and very schooled. Like it was said that Teddy Roosevelt could read like three books in a day he would also sit down and write books like he wrote entire histories of war. Right. But president Roosevelt, he was also a sportsman. He would go and, uh, you know, like hunt bears. Uh, of course, a lot of that has probably been mythologized. You know, the, the whole idea that like the, like the teddy bear, for instance, was named after Theodore Roosevelt, because there's the story that Teddy Roosevelt was hunting bears down South. And he saw this one bear, and decided to spare its life, I think, because it was walking around with its cub and he didn't want to shoot the bear in front of its brood, right? 
So he was also a sympathetic man. He wasn't afraid to every once in a while express emotions, but, but, uh, more importantly than anything else is that he was a resolute man, right? Teddy Roosevelt was, uh, was a man who just stood behind his word. You know, he, he, he talked the talk, he wrote it right during the Spanish American war. He uh, went and recruited a bunch of cowboys. Okay. And they went down to uh, Cuba and they became the rough riders. Right. And, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was a guy who basically put his entire career on the line, his family, everything. Um, because, uh, to go and back up what he, what he had said in the press, what he had said in the newspapers, right. That he would go down and fight. Okay. He wasn't just a guy who talked about war and then, you know, cowered behind legislative documents. You know, he went down and did it. Of course, we can't really have that in our president now, but you know, but Teddy Roosevelt is like the, the, the archetypical man that I think people are obsessed with in a lot of ways, especially now, um, because there's this, uh, I think there's this feeling that we've lost that in a sense, you know, we've lost that idea of what it means to be a man. You know, the, you know, the idea that Teddy Roosevelt never played Xbox, Teddy Roosevelt never spent all of his time binge watching Netflix shows. You know, like, get out there, damn it, and be a man. Okay. So there's this idea now that, like, uh, you've got to self-style yourself as a gentleman, Right. And I think a lot of the culture is bent on what that looks like. Like I said, if you have a beard, there's all these manly beer balm, beard balms you can get. You know? There's a uh, certain shaving soaps, you know, people are a lot of men now I notice, and I did it too. And I got to say, it's amazing are getting rid of the traditional shaving foam. And they're going back to the old brush style of shaving, you know, they'll get a brush and you know, run it through some shaving soap and a coffee mug and shave that way. And I started doing that last year. (laughs) I'm no different. I love it. Actually, it's made me look forward to shaving, but certain, you know, it's, uh, it's this role though, that we're playing. We're, we're, we're playing this role of being men. Okay. And of course, you know, what does it actually mean? you know, to be a man, you know, outside of just looking like one, right. Outside of just like going to the gym and being physically strong, right. What does it say in the boy scout handbook again? What makes a man right. And this is part of the, uh, this is part of the boy scout oath. Remember the one that I couldn't memorize. Uh, it's important to America and to yourself that you become a citizen of fine character, physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight, right? <laughs> Whatever morally straight means. You know. But yeah, I, I think there's this notion though that uh in order to kind of you know be a man, you you not you have to you can't just kind of live on an island. You have to be a citizen in good standing uh with your community. 
You have to be somebody who goes out there and earns and is responsible and not only takes care of their own house and their own affairs, but, you know, lends a hand to help other people out. And I think that's a great idea. I think that's really interesting. You know, it's, it's, it is interesting that we, we do have this interest in, in what, in what the traditional man is like. And again, I think it goes back to the early 1900s, a time when the Boy Scouts were founded and the time when Teddy Roosevelt was president. There's this romance of like the titan of industry of the Gilded Age, you know, the Rockefellers and the J.P. Morgans and uh, the, 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 uh, the Andrew Carnegie's, you know, these are, these are men who started with nothing. Well, J.P. Morgan actually started with a few million dollars, but. But, you know, and then they went out and they built not just careers, but they built empires, okay, to the point where Teddy Roosevelt had to come in and break them up and and turn them into a lot of other little companies because they were essentially monopolizing and running everybody else out of business. So they were pejoratively called the robber barons. But this idea of, like, the titan of industry that now it's like as a man, you know, you've, you've got to be somebody with the will and the power to rise to the top of your game. Okay. And it's, it is kind of like, it's a, it's a bit misleading and a little ironic that there is this obsession, you know, in this romantic, this romanticism of the Titan of industry, because essentially that was the, uh, the Gilded age, the age of the Titan of industry was the age of realism, right? That, that, that was when these people were coming in, in literary terms and, uh, and, uh, creating massive poverty and, uh, um, in a lot of ways, massive unemployment and they were busting up labor unions and it was a very, you know, kind of nasty time really. Um, so I guess people want to look like Andrew Carnegie and J.P. Morgan and Nelson Rockefeller, but hopefully they don't necessarily want to, uh, you know, to, uh, to be like them in a business sense. But I was thinking about this uh, this week, and I, there was a, a book that I read a couple of years ago. It was a fiction book from the 1920s uh, written by Sinclair Lewis uh, called Babbitt. And indeed, you know, Babbitt was actually, it's pretty much a forgotten book now, unless you're kind of a serious book nerd. Um, I'm not really, I'm I'm an English teacher, but I'm not really a serious book nerd. Um, But I do read uh, a lot of books that interest me. And in this book, Babbitt did interest me and it, it did... In the 1920s and 30s, it became adopted by Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. The actual term Babbitt is a noun. And it means a person, and especially a business or professional man, who conforms unthinkingly to prevailing middle-class standards. Uh, So the story Babbitt is about a man named George Babbitt, who is an insurance broker 
in the 1920s, okay, when the story was written, and he's a citizen in good standing in his community. You know, he takes care of his family financially. He's a member of the local Kiwanis Club. Um, everybody knows Babbitt. He can go to the local club, the cigar club, and tell a good off-color joke. You know, Babbitt is kind of everything to everyone. The only problem is, is that he doesn't really have any humanity, really. Like, he provides for his family, but he doesn't really have a love for them. They, they're sort of existing just to create, like, a to round out a character for Babbitt. You know? And he basically is just conforming without really thinking to what is expected of him as a modern American man. And it was also kind of this idea of being the modern American man in the 1920s is also wrapped up in this idea of like not only serving your community and your country, but also serving God, right? And uh, this is very much in keeping with the Boy Scout philosophy of that time as well. And ever since then, you know, the idea that in order to be a citizen in good standing, you have to be morally straight, you know, you have to serve God and whatever comes with that. So, you know, you don't have an affair. You're not a homosexual. Um, you go to church every Sunday and you tithe 10% of your income. Okay. You know. It's not just the idea that being a man means that you serve God. It means that it's God's providence that you serve, that you not only serve him, but you also serve your community through doing business and buying things, i.e. conforming unthinkingly to middle-class ideas of capitalism. And ultimately that way you kind of rebel against the communist, right? So, yeah. So the Boy Scouts of America kind of keep this notion alive. Of like, you're not really, you're not really being a man. You're just kind of playing the role of a man. You know, you're, you're fulfilling this kind of prescribed niche within your community to, uh, to be morally straight, to present the community with like a, a, you know, like a proper attitude. But it does the Boy Scouts of America, like, and I don't want to say anything like, I don't want to be 100% negative. It has great intentions. I did enjoy some of my time in the Boy Scouts, but I feel like it trained me to play a character. It was like, we went into the basement and we learned how to tie knots but we didn't really learn what those knots were for, right? <laughs> I'm sure later on we could have learned a few things in context, but most of the time when I went into Boy Scouts, it was like stand at a trailhead and learn about venomous snakes. You know, you're, you're kind of learning about these things, but you're not learning about them in context. You're kind of learning to have the knowledge, but not to really do anything with it. Okay. And sometimes these Boy Scouts, they kind of force themselves on you. 
And listen, if you were a former boy scout, if you're an Eagle scout, something like that, you know, I, I'm, you know, sorry, but, <laughs> but you know, a lot of times you, you can always kind of tell if somebody was a boy scout because they'll be very forceful. They'll kind of come up and like solicit advice or give advice to you without you asking for it. It's so like one time I was washing cars as part of a charity fundraiser from, for the school where I teach, we were trying to raise money for prom. And, uh, this guy comes up to me who I know to be a scout leader, you know, a boy scout dad. And he starts like telling me how to like wash the car, you know? And I said, very, thank you very much. And I appreciate it. I was very nice to him, but in my mind, I'm thinking like, I know how to wash cars, dude. I've had like, I've been washing cars for 30 years, right? So I'm going to tie, see if I can tie some knots tonight. I remember these knots from Boy Scouts, you know, and they always teach you these weird kind of uh, tricks of how to tie them. So, like, you 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 have a hole right here, and you take the tail, and the tail is the rabbit. So the rabbit goes around the hole, and then he goes in the hole, and then he goes down into his hole, and you pull it, and, ah, there it is. There's a figure eight. Look at that. Well, you can't look at it if you're listening on audio, but <laughs> this is on a live stream. And then you can do like a, you can do a double figure eight knot, which is basically just kind of taking the hole and the, the hole this time is the tail. So the hole, this is like, um, this is your alien head. This, this, this alien is named Bob. So what Bob does is Bob, uh, bends down to pick a flower and then a rabbit runs by him, goes behind him. So Bob goes, contorts, and then he eats his own face. I don't think that's right. <laughs> I don't think that's how they taught us in the Boy Scouts. I don't know. And then you've got this clove hitch. And the clove hitch, I know, I actually used this when I was working as a zipline guide. So the clove hitch is uh, something that you kind of use to grip the rope around something. Like we used to have to rescue people if they got stuck in the middle of the zip line. And we would clove hitch a rope onto a weight. Then we would put that weight onto uh, a trolley that we would then send down the zip line and the person would sort of grab the weight. And then we would, uh, they would hold onto it while we would pull them back. So the clove hitch is like you've got... You're on a roller coaster and you go over one loop-de-loop and then you go over another loop-de-loop and then those, the second loop goes under the first loop and then you tie it around something. I'm using my cheer wine bottle. Then you tie it and then you pull tension. Look at that. You can lift it up. Oh, that's cool. There you go. <laughs> yes. 
I could still be a Boy Scout. I think I'd make a damn good Boy Scout, yeah. So, uh... Yeah, I, I sometimes thought about kind of like looking at the badges at the merit. You know, you would get merit badges for for being a Boy Scout. You would get like merit badges for like, for instance, um, writing a letter to a congressman or something. I don't know. Uh, eventually, like the Eagle Scout, which is the highest rank in the Boy Scouts you can get, you have to do like some big project. Like we've had some kids that I teach do Eagle Scout projects for our school. Like one of them built like a Gaga ball pit. One of them built like a bunch of benches. But yeah, I was always fascinated by like the badge system. The idea that it's like kind of a form of Pokemon, you know, you just try and collect them all. And I was thinking about like as an adult, you know, can I go and I can I just do all of the stuff that it requires to get a merit badge and then just send off to Boy Scout National Headquarters and they send me the badges and I just start building it from there. Because I think as an adult, I would probably like it a lot more. You know, the pursuit of, uh, of becoming accomplished and getting badges. Ultimately, it was because of the merit badges that I quit Boy Scouts. Yeah, I quit because you had to do a mile swim in order to move up to Boy Scout first class, I think. And I, I didn't, I hated swimming. And especially the way that we had to get it is we were at Boy Scout camp for a week. And you had to get that badge by swimming a mile in like a dirty, muddy pond. I didn't want to do that. So I dropped out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I came home from Boy Scout camp and I never went to another meeting ever again. I guess technically I was still in Boy Scouts all the way until I was like 18 or whatever. When you can no longer be in there. I just never went to meetings. So, you know. But yeah, I think now, though, that I understand that even though I always felt like the Boy Scouts, they were trying to teach me how to act and how to behave like a like a young man and like a man eventually would. I think there were some pretty good core principles that I now today learn. I just. Uh, and now today, no, because, you know, I guess I'm. I'm 38 years old. I mean, if I'm not a man now, I might as well be before too long. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I, I kind of feel like the basic tenets of, of being a man. And I think if they had taught me this in Boy Scouts, I would have been perfectly fine with it. And it would have made sense to me. You know, try to learn new things every day. You know, don't sit around all day unless you really feel like it. And, you know, just, it's okay to be lazy. Just, you know, make sure that you're not lazy, like, all the time. Uh, be on time to work so that you don't get fired and, you know, you, you have to go and beg for money. 
Uh, if you're in a relationship, be a good boyfriend or be a good husband, you know, uh, don't be a jerk to people. I don't know. That's, you know, that's, that's what I believe. If they would have just taught me that, I think I would have understood it. But I don't know. The boy Scouts taught me that for some reason to be a man, I have to learn how to swim one mile I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. I'm fine. I had a lot of good times camping out and all that. You know, here's my oath. Here's my oath. Okay. I'm going to start my own boy scout, you know, midnight citizen scouting club. All right, here it is on my honor. I will do my best to take it easy, to be a good person to whomever, whomever I respect. And perhaps those that I, I don't. To help other people who ask for it to work, but also learn to relax when the time calls for it. Um, And to do a new podcast every Saturday night uh, from Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I do a lot of things uh, that uh, I think my old scoutmaster would be proud of. You know, I don't go to church every Sunday. I think he would be disappointed in me for that. But I still go camping quite a bit. You know, I haven't been in a little over a year. Um, but I camp quite a bit. You know, I really did learn how to go camping in college, not so much in, in, in Boy Scouts. Like in Boy Scouts, it seemed like adults were kind of always doing things for you. <laughs> but when I started going camping with my friends in college, that's when I really learned how to like do things like build a fire and split wood and things like that. Right? Yeah. So I, I feel I feel fairly accomplished with that. All right. So we're going to take a break here and listen to some music. Don't go away. We still got more stuff to talk about. This is the Midnight Citizen Show. Thank you so much for joining me. She stands waiting for a man 
waiting for that man. Welcome. Welcome back into the studio. I hope you enjoyed that music break. Let's see who, who that was there. Yeah, you heard uh, Forget the Whale. A song called Man Out of Town. I really like Forget the Whale. Uh, they actually uh, comment and send me a thank you every time I play one of their songs on the show. So thank you so much. Um, forget the whale for offering up your music for free. As long as I attribute, attribute it to you, which I just did. 
And then you had that last song, Phone Book and Rotary by Derek Clegg. I've I've played him on the past on past shows. That's from the album The Midler. Yeah, very good songs. Um, and you can find them on the free music archive at WFMU.org. Wonderful resource for creators like myself. So I want to remind you that you can uh, listen to me and watch me in multiple ways, uh, starting with mikebootycom slash the midnight citizen, where you can find this show as well as uh, every show I've done back to January of 2011. You can listen to them there for free. Obviously I don't charge. You can also listen to me uh, on Stitcher, Spotify. You can watch the live stream of this show with video at youtube.com slash Mike Booty. You can see me do all my amazing knots that I just did, right? Tying clove hitches on my cheer wine. <laughs> and uh, you can also listen to me and a lot of other amazing podcasters like me who do this type of show. Um, over at the Overnight Scape Underground on SUG, O-N-S-U-G.com. An amazing place for other independent podcasters like myself. Check it out. Yeah, I've got the Midnight Citizen candle burning bright over here. The whole studio here is going to go up in flames. Hopefully not. Yeah, this is a kind of a, a melancholy, a bittersweet time for me here. As, as I said, I am a high school English teacher. And it is late July, which could only mean one thing, Right. Listen, I'm going to I'm going to ask all of you out there. And and I'm not it's not that I'm I'm unappreciative. I am. And all of us teachers are, okay? But when you see a teacher in the summertime, if it's before August 1st, do not ask them when school starts back again. That's all I've been getting lately from people, and I appreciate them and I value their friendships. And in some cases, their marriages. Okay. <laughs> but like, we're teachers and we want to relax during the summer. And I make a personal point to not even think about school starting back until August 1st. Okay. It starts sometimes in August, sometime in August. That's the answer I'm going to give to you. Between late May and the 1st of August. That's when school starts back. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> All right. But yeah, I hate that summer's coming to an end. And uh, I just got the phone call the other day from my uh, principal that I've been dreading. Um, that we will be required, us teachers, whether we're vaccinated or not. And we're all vaccinated. 
uh, will be required to wear masks when we go back to school in a few weeks. And I hate that so much. I mean, I've been vaccinated since February. Honestly, I mean, as soon as it was available to me, I went and got it. I drove three hours round trip two times to go get a vaccine. And still there are 60% of the people in the state of Alabama who were eligible have not gotten vaccinated. And it just boggles my mind. I turned on the news this morning and Kay Ivey, um, you know, our Republican governor was on the national news of CBS just speechless. They were asking her, you know, why don't you think Alabamians are getting the vaccine? And she's like, you tell me, I don't know. We've given them everything. We've given them free rides around the racetrack at Talladega. We've put Nick Saban on the television and told them that he got one, you know, Nick Saban, the, uh, the famous coach of the Alabama football team at the University of Alabama, my alma mater. You know, they put him on television in this massive ad campaign for people in Alabama. You know, telling him that he got the vaccine. I mean, they, they would listen to Nick Saban over anybody, over Dr. Anthony Fauci, surely. And still, it only bumped up the numbers about 5%. Alabama, the state I am in, still has the record uh, highest rate of unvaccinated people. And uh, I was really thinking that back in February, okay, that's great. We're going to we're gonna probably have to wear masks until the end of the school year, but that's okay. We'll lick this thing and we'll get back to it next year. I no longer have to teach in a mask. I mean, teaching in a mask is terrible because I'm in a classroom I have to talk all day long and talking through that mask. I just, I can't like I hit a breaking point there at the end of the school year. I was tired of doing it. I could not do it anymore. And now I'm going to have to because 60% of Alabama morons. Well, I don't know. Enough of that. Speaking of high school, I just realized the other day, uh, this is 2021. I graduated high school 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I graduated high school, you know? When is my high school reunion going to be? Aren't we supposed to have these things? You know, I was raised thinking that Once you graduate high school, you never see anybody ever again until 10, 20, 30 years later. Right. And, uh, there's no, there, there has not been any talk at all about a high school reunion for Oak Mountain class of 2001 until this week. Yeah. On Facebook. Here it is. I got a notification on uh, July 21st, uh, from Lauren Martin Jones. I I can't remember who that is. I guess I went to high school with her. Um, I've got 28 mutual friends with her. And here's a picture of her with like her kids and things. Um, 
She says, hello, everyone. I hope this finds everyone well. We are trying to plan our 20th high school reunion. Time flies. We're trying to engage interest to plan something for the fall. We are possibly looking at September 25th weekend. September 25th. That's the week of my birthday. That's the week that I turned 39. And that's another thing I realized this week. I, I went into the uh, living room the other day. My wife was watching the movie City Slickers. You know, the movie with Billy Crystal where uh, he's got like a midlife crisis and he uh, goes with his friends out to the desert and they uh, drive cattle, you know, for like a week to try and regain some of their manhood. Oh my God, it's tying in. Look at that. They feel like they're emasculated men and they need to get back that manhood. Like the city and society has emasculated them by giving them these dead end jobs and these, uh, thankless roles in society and they have to go out and test themselves. Right. You know, I was watching city slickers and I realized the beginning of that movie opens up with Billy Crystal getting a call from his mother and she's weeping and she's like 39 years ago today, I went to the hospital and gave birth to you. Oh my God. I just realized I'm going to be 39. I'm going to be the same age that Billy Crystal was in that movie. Yeah. And I, I didn't go to my 2000, my, my, my 10 year high school reunion, which would have been, yeah, 10 years ago, 2011. I didn't go to that reunion because I felt like 10 years was not enough time. You know, in 2011, I was still in graduate school. I just felt like it wasn't enough time to like get away from everybody and have like a little bit of uh grasp on life. And now 10 years later, I don't think 20 years is, is long enough, right? I don't know. I mean, I've, I've accomplished things in the past 10 years, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, what, what, what really is the point of a high school reunion? You know, at least not today. I think it's like important to my parents generation, you know, not too long ago, my dad had his 50th, um, high school reunion, something like that. You know, it was important to them because they didn't, they, they grew up in an age without Facebook, without social media. You know, you kept in touch with people by calling them on the telephone or, or mailing them letters. Um, now I'm going on here. I mean, I could just have a reunion with you guys on Facebook. Like, I know, I know that's not very personal, but then again, I mean, I wasn't really personal with a lot of these people. Like I'm looking at some of these, uh, comments And, uh, I notice, okay, there, there are two names here that I know. I know because I was in AP government with them senior year. Yeah. Jairus. I, I remember her very well. And, and Ben, Ben Glasgow, Ben, well, I can't say his last name. Yeah. Ben, I remember him very well because, um, well, I actually just taught his, uh, daughter in summer camp, um, a few weeks ago. I haven't seen Ben in many years, but his father was actually a teacher of mine. But yeah, I sent a Facebook message to Ben saying like, I'm really enjoying teaching your daughter. She's great. And he's like, thanks man. Yeah. I mean, that would be like, like no offense to anybody at all, but that would be about the extent of my conversation. I haven't kept up with any of these people really. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
so funny. I'm looking on this page for Oak Mountain Class of 2001, and before this post, for from July 21st of this week, the last post was December 10th of 2014. Yeah, one of my uh, classmates, I guess I went to school with him. I don't remember him. He said, update Hoover City Hall, Monday, December 15th at 6 p.m. Voice your opinion. He didn't want a gas station going on his neighborhood. So he's angry about that. Uh, Let me see all the way back. August 14th, 2011. Sorry, I missed it. Hope everyone had a blast. I wish I was there, too. It was great to see everyone. I had a great time. I had a blast. That was so much fun. Everybody seemed like they had a really fun time <laughs> at the high school reunion 10 years ago. Yeah, I uh, I did not go to it. Um, my, my sister did, actually, though. My sister went to it because um, she's married to my brother-in-law, obviously, who gave me this Reservoir Dogs Zippo lighter. And who I did indeed graduate high school with. I I take that back. I've kept up with one person from high school, the guy who became my brother-in-law. And uh, my sister was one year behind us. So uh, she went because she knew a lot of people. And uh, yeah, I mean, they said it was perfectly fine. People asked about me, she said. I remember her saying, which was kind of cool. I don't know. I always kind of think it's just better just to kind of leave everybody with the impression that they had of you. You don't want to try and, you know, go and show up and all of a sudden, you know, it would feel like high school again. You would be back to just making the same old impression of yourself, but trying to like portray yourself as like the cool adult. I used to be so nerdy and now I'm kind of cool, but, um, I don't know. I think that that, that they, if you try to go there and portray that, they would catch on to you in a heartbeat. So Yeah, it's interesting because you don't really feel like you're getting that old um, until a certain point. Like I was uh, reading tonight. I was reading a book. And I noticed that I was having a hard time seeing the words. And I said to my wife, I'm wondering if I maybe need to take advantage of the vision insurance on my health plan and go and get my eyes checked because I don't think I'm reading as well as I used to. You know, yeah, you know, just little things like, uh, I looked at a picture of myself this week and compared it with the picture of myself that I took last year. And I noticed that I have more gray hair You know, that's a sign of getting older is when like you, you, your appearance, your physical appearance starts to change like with hair, right? And you start getting hair in places like where you never knew it could grow like between your knuckles, right? (laughs) In your ears, okay? All this puberty that never ends. And I had this moment, you know, a couple of weeks ago where I tried to do something that I always used to take for granted that I could do. And I couldn't do it anymore. And this was uh, the fact that it was midnight and I had to print something up and my printer wasn't working. 
And I said to myself, okay, fine, I'll just go to Kinko's. Yeah, because like when I was in college or high school all the time and my printer would break, you know, there was a Kinko's right down the street. It was open all night long for these express jobs that couldn't wait. And I, I just, I went down the street to the Kinko's and it was closed at midnight. They apparently are not open anymore um, all night long, just during regular business hours. I guess the thinking being is that this is an increasingly paperless world. You know, we never, we no longer live in a world where people need copies at midnight. I don't know. They can just get it on their phone, I guess. (laughs) And, you know, I had this moment also where I tried to do something. Well, I didn't try to do it, but I realized that I no longer enjoy going to Walmart. (laughs) Like going to Walmart is really not the funnest experience in the world, but going to Walmart when I was in my twenties and especially in high school used to be like one of the funnest goddamn things in the world. Just this place of like endless products that you could look at and entertain yourself by looking at and just walk around It was such a fun place to go. And I no longer have any desire to go to Walmart, especially going to Walmart at midnight, you know? Like, my friends and I, we used to go and, like, film short films at Walmart. We would, like, smuggle a camera in, and we would go all over the place and just film each other, you know, just, like, looking at different things, you know, doing different tricks, you know, like, kind of uh, doing the whole hard day's night thing of, standing behind aisles, peeking up and then cutting the film. And then, you know, we're a couple of aisles back and we peek up again. Right. And eventually getting thrown out of Walmart. Like that was part of the whole entertaining experience was going to Walmart and getting kicked out for doing something stupid. Right. And, uh, you know, the, really the last time I remember doing something like that, going to Walmart just for the entertainment value of it, was when Jessica and I were uh, dating. It was during like our early courtship phase, if you can call it that. You know, we were just having fun going all over town doing things. And we went to the toy section at Walmart, as young couples do. And we just started like kind of taking the rubber balls out of the case, out of the cage and kind of bouncing them around an employee came up to us and said, you know, you're not supposed to play with those balls. And we just laughed and laughed. We got a good kick out of that. Right. And that was fun stuff to go to Walmart just to uh, get kicked out of it. It's part of what being young is all about. I can't do that anymore. Yeah. I used to love going to Walmart for like, um, their midnight releases. You know, it, it, when I was in college, uh, my friends and I, we were really big movie fans and, and video game fans. And we would always love going to Walmart at midnight. Cause that was the only place that was open all night long where you could go and get stuff that you really wanted. And you didn't want to wait until the next day. I mean, you could wait until the next day, 
And you could get stuff that ultimately you didn't really care about that much. But part of the fun and the entertainment of it was just going to Walmart and having this midnight adventure, you know, getting the thing that was released at midnight as they were putting it on the shelf. And then going to the grocery section and getting like a pizza or something and maybe some beer and going home with it, right? And enjoying it. It's so much fun. And also just like them not really understanding why you're there at midnight. Like, I mean, could this guy not wait? Just having that kind of bit of miscommunication with the people who work. These like people who are very unhappy because they have to work an all night shift at Walmart, unloading these huge pallets of boxes. You know, that's kind of part of the entertainment value of it as well, because you're sort of doing something that you love and they're doing something that they hate. You know, you're kind of a brat about it. But anyway, so I remember like one time I, I went to uh, Walmart at midnight because the new box set of like Friday the 13th was coming out, you know, Friday the 13th, you know, the, those movies with uh, Jason Voorhees that took place at the summer camp where people are always dying at the whim of this, uh, you know, masked maniac. I love those movies in college so much. I still do. I still watch them from time to time. And uh, after many years of just being able to watch them on videotape, uh, the, the movie studio was releasing them all in this one box set. And I was so excited about getting it. I looked forward to it for months. Well, they had special features and all that stuff. And I went to Walmart at midnight, you know, I went back to the entertainment section. Of course, there were these miserable looking people with these blue smocks on that said, how may I help you today? You know, in big gay letters. And, uh, I went up to the, I went up to the entertainment section. I didn't see the Friday the 13th had been put out on the shelf yet. And I looked at my watch and it was 1158. I'm like, okay, two minutes. And it was like, when, when it hit midnight, I was expecting them to just magically appear on the shelves. Right. Start sing, singing like the candy man from uh, Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory or something. So midnight came and they didn't put them on the shelf. So, you know, I went up to the guy and I was like, uh, excuse me, sir. Uh, I'm expecting the Friday, the 13th box set. It's supposed to be released at midnight, I believe. And they said like, yeah, we haven't put it out yet. And I said, I understand, sir, but it's 1202, you know, and I'm, I'm waiting for it. Uh, do you think you could go ahead and, uh, and put it on the shelf? <laughs> so, yeah. I don't think I'm ever going to have an experience like that ever again, you know? I mean, I guess I could. I mean, Walmart's probably open right now and it's midnight here in Birmingham, Alabama. I can go. No. Why don't we take his trip down to the Video Street Video Store instead? Yeah, and see what new stock they've got down there at the Video Street Video Store. Enjoy it.
and I'll be back in a minute. This is the Midnight Citizen Show. Manual is the handbook for democratic youth the world over. More than 10 million copies have already been sold. It is a guide for the Boy Scout who one night each week assembles with his troop to reaffirm his own oath and to administer it to any new member. On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and to obey the Scout law, to help other people at all times to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. Tiniest members in the Boy Scout organization are its cubs, who, at the age of nine, think of themselves not as Moffats, but as grown-up Boy Scouts. The joys of cubbing are short-lived, for at 12, the cub must take upon himself more serious obligations. Every year, 300,000 young citizens, cubs who have reached the age of 12 and other recruits, become full-fledged scouts. Now the American boy finds that scouting centers around the experiences of outdoor life. In the scout scheme of character building, there is no place for regimentation, no standard pattern to which every boy must conform. But first principle of the scout movement is that the duty of the American youth is to improve his general knowledge and fit himself for the responsibilities of good citizenship. Week after week, the Explorer Scout returns home with a new sense of self-reliance and a new appreciation of the world in which he lives. once again promised us something spectacular. Super Dave? Super Dave, are you almost ready for today's stunt? Yes, John, I am. And I'm getting ready for what will probably be my most spectacular stunt. Is it going to be even more impressive than when you tried to mate with a blue whale? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, I've been a stuntman all my life. And even though I take every precaution necessary, the thing that protects me most is my incredible sense of what's going on around me. Uh, call it karma, call it vibes, call it ESP. Call it what you will. The point is that I sense danger and uh, react like a cat. So uh, how do you use that special sense this evening, Super Dave? Well, as you know, John, uh, I've caught bullets with my teeth. But I did that stunt with my eyes open. Uh, I've developed my sensitivity to a point now where I feel confident enough to perform my stunt today with a blindfold. Uh, it's a very difficult stunt. I've never done it with a blindfold before, but God is with me, and I hope everything will be work out fine. It's an extremely bright day today. Uh, as you can see, I'm squinting, but... With the blindfold, that won't be a problem. So if you'll bear with me now, I'll get in position and thank you. All right, guys. Prepare the blindfold. John, what they're doing now 
is uh, they're putting the blindfold on up a little higher, if you can. They're putting the blindfold on, so I will not be able to see anything. Louis, if you'll pass your hand in front of my eyes. Okay, I can't see anything. Okay, do you have my visor closed? No. Okay, thanks, guys. All right, now what I'm going to do, I'll have to ask for quiet from the crowd. I appreciate that this many people showed up today for this event, but I'm going to have to ask for silence because the timing of what I'm doing now is very key. Now, it's all between me and the man in the crane, and don't do anything until I say go. What they're going to try to do is crush me with an 11-ton metal... I'm okay. Uh, I had a problem. I had a problem. Uh, this is not an excuse. I don't make, Super Dave doesn't make excuses. But it wasn't the blindfold that did it. It's just that what, what I arranged with the guy who was running the crane, what I was supposed to do was I was supposed to put my visor down, then lock into the wall, and then he wasn't supposed to move the ball until I said go. Wait, I didn't mean go. Get this off of me. You weren't supposed to do it until I told you. God, I'm in pain. Get this off. Oh, I need help. Help me, Sonny! <laughs> Sonny! Sonny, help me! I have to go to a hospital. I have to go to a hospital. I shouldn't have done this. I can't believe the guy in the crane. Take it easy, Sonny. I'm in a lot of pain. Everything's broken. I drive real slowly and don't do anything until I say go. Sonny, I'm not ready. Oh. Well, John Biner, I'm sorry this didn't work, and uh, I'm going to have to cancel my appearance at your birthday party Saturday where that elephant was going to step on my nuts. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we had a couple of back to back themed trip to the Midnight Citizen to the Video Street Video Store tonight. I would say, wouldn't you? Yeah, we had a, an old newsreel, of course, from uh, the 1930s on the Boy Scouts of America. Very straight face telling you what the... Uh, I feel like the uh, 1930s were the golden age of the Boy Scouts of America. Because, you know, indeed, that was the time of the Civilian Conservation Corps. You know, those days of the Great Depression. Uh, where young men all over the country who couldn't find work, they, you know, signed up for a job with the government. And went to work building roads and campgrounds and uh, things like that and highways. 
you know, they were given a place to sleep and they were given meals and they had to spit, they had to send like 80% of their income back to their families. And that was kind of one of Franklin Roosevelt's great plans to get, you know, to not only like get American men working again, but also to boost the morale of the country to stimulate the economy and all that. And it had this double effect that when, uh, you know, the Japanese struck Pearl Harbor in 1941, there was like this ready army of civilian conservation corps men, you know, to go and fight because they were used to living this kind of Spartan military existence of living in big tents with lots of other guys living on a regimented schedule. Right. And the boy Scouts was kind of the precursor to the civilian conservation corps. You know, the, the, the boy Scouts kind of treats kids in the days before they're eligible to go into the military, you know, to, to live with each other in a healthy communal atmosphere, you know, to eat bad food and sleep in tents and build latrines and, uh, you know, survive right out of their comfort zones. See how we had that. And then, uh, we had, uh, a clip of super Dave Osborne. I'm not sure what year that was filmed. I have to think probably late seventies. Yeah. Super Dave Osborne is the, uh, alter ego of comedian Bob Einstein, who is uh, also comedian Albert Brooks's brother and super Dave. I forgot about him. I always liked him when I was a kid, he would come on and, you know, pretend to do all these stunts. And of course the stunts would go horribly wrong. Like, you know, that one, you know, this gigantic wrecking ball hit him in the stomach off cue and uh, then dropped on him on his groin area. Oh, right. And, uh, that was, that was it. That was the joke, but it was funny and it's hilarious. And I think what sells that is uh, Bob Einstein essentially satirizing the idea of manliness. You know, the idea that like, you know, super Dave doesn't make excuses. Right. And coming up with these like, great. Cause that's what the idea of the daredevil is. You know, he, he's this guy who flies in the face of danger, you know, who's not afraid to put his brawn on display and uh, he may get hurt. He may get maimed. He may get killed, but it's the sheer act of the bravery, right? That people respect. And super Dave satirized that idea, this idea that, uh, you know, of like manly pride and arrogance. Right. And I love that idea. I think my favorite line from that whole segment just now that I, I played for you, was a uh, super Dave. This, this may be a stunt even more dangerous than the time you tried to mate with the blue whale. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Bob Einstein died a few years ago, unfortunately. Um, but he was uh, on uh curb your enthusiasm for years as a Marty Funkhauser, right? Very funny guy. And is it interestingly, I, I heard the story not too long ago where him and uh, Albert Brooks, their dad was a very famous comedian in his own right. And, uh, his father actually was at his last performance ever as a comedian was at the Friars club roast of, uh, 
you know, the Friars Club, that very famous uh, club for comedians, you know, they had a tribute to Lucy and Desi, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. And I've heard tape of the event where, you know, Albert Brooks's father comes on stage and does all this material. He makes fun of Lucy and Desi as they do at the Friars Club roast. And then he goes back to his seat um, and dies. He actually dies right after, uh, right after his set. It's a very legendary story um, in the annals of comedy. Anyway, I just thought I'd let you know that. Interesting stuff. All right, and lastly tonight on the show, I talked to you a couple weeks ago about uh, going to Barnes & Noble and hanging out with all the other sweaty film nerds and, uh, and taking part in the big sale of criterion editions, right? The criterion edition is like really the last holdout of great physical media. You know, they, they put out these, um, masterfully packaged, um, DVDs and Blu-rays of, of classic films. And it just makes you want to become a film lover all over again. You know, they, they just put these amazing movies out. And uh, a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, I said that I went to Barnes and Noble and kind of splurged and got a few Blu-rays and DVDs of Criterion editions, you know, including a couple of films by Albert Brooks, you know, Lost in America and, uh, and Defending Your Life. And, uh, yeah, this week I decided to go back and get a couple more because it was a new pay period and why not? I had some money in my bank account. So yeah, I just kind of wanted to say what I got. So I got this film called medium cool, uh, by Haskell Wexler, uh, from 1969. If you've never seen medium cool before, this is an interesting movie. You know, Haskell Wexler is of course the, uh, iconic, legendary cinematographer who filmed movies like bound for glory and, uh, American graffiti, excellent cinematographer. But in 1968, he made this movie medium cool, um, which is it's part narrative and part documentary. The narrative part of it, the fictional part of it involves a cameraman played by Robert Forster. You may remember him from like Jackie Brown, for instance. Um, kind of going around and getting camera footage of just different events. And this is in Chicago in 1968. And obviously there's a lot happening in Chicago in 1968. It seems to be kind of like the, uh, you know, the cross section of the political social upheaval of the time culminating, of course, very famously in August of that year at the democratic national convention where, uh, you know, the National Guard and members of the Chicago Police Department heavily sedated and uh, fought back against uh, rioting protesters who were there because the Democratic National Committee or the Democratic Party was not really very favorable to, or they were basically turning a blind eye on Vietnam 
And these student protesters hated them for that. And of course, Robert Kennedy had just been shot. Martin Luther King Jr. had just been shot. So it seemed like kind of all the progressive heroes were dying. So all this stuff kind of happens in 1968. And Haskell Wexler is there. And he's got his fictional cameraman played by Robert Forrester going around and uh, filming things like the National Guard preparing for the inevitable, preparing for rioters. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the movie is very interesting because, of course, the last 25 minutes or so of the movie takes place with the narrative going into the Democratic National Committee. So a lot of the film is actually shot during the actual riots themselves. And so it's an interesting movie that way. And what I find so fascinating about it is, is the idea that like, as somebody who went to college to, uh, to do news. And of course I eventually very wisely decided not to do that, <laughs> but I nevertheless, I'm very interested in like filming things and, and recording audio and documenting things. You know, this is what I do. I enjoy doing that stuff, going out into the world, taking pictures, taking video, recording audio. It sometimes affords you a certain filter. You feel like you're not actually part of the action. If you're looking at something through a lens, you feel like you're watching it on TV. You feel like you're objective to it, right? And, uh, and what the movie is, is, is involved in is it, it actually shows kind of the moral dilemma that the main character faces with that, or eventually has to make this decision. You know, am I, am I objective or am I subjective? Am I part of the movement or am I divorced from it? You know, it's a very interesting movie medium. Cool. It feels like it honestly could have been filmed yesterday. So, and the other film I got, which I think actually ties in pretty well to what I've been talking about tonight is a uh, salesman. One of the great documentaries of all time. This is made by the Maisel brothers. Oh, I didn't even realize it also coincidentally came out in 1969, the same year as medium cool. And salesman is, is indeed a movie about men who were completely apolitical objective. They don't give a care whatsoever about what happens in Vietnam or in Chicago at the democratic national convention. They're just interested in where their next meal is going to come from. If they're going to be able to send some money home from their kids, they're a group of traveling Bible salesmen. This is a great example of direct cinema. Uh, what I was talking about a couple of weeks ago with town bloody hall, you know, the other movie I got on criterion, you know, which is about, you know, salesman is uh, a movie that just has documentary filmmakers following these people around. They have no idea what they're really filming. If it's ultimately going to add up to anything, but they're just filming something and then they figure it out later. Right. And so what I find most genuine about the men in salesmen, the Bible salesmen, as they go from house to house and hotel room to hotel room and pack of cigarettes to pack of cigarettes, right? Is they're not playing any role whatsoever. Even when they're selling, even when they're trying to have to put on this, you know, they're, they're kind of foul mouthed and kind of like, they're not really the kind of people that you think would be selling Bibles, right? But even when they are in the living rooms of these poor Catholic people, 
who were chain smoking cigarettes and like, you know, suffering from arthritis and living these hard lives in these cold climates. Like, I think they shot a lot of the film in Wisconsin, right? These Bible salesmen are still genuine people. They're not really playing a role. They're just their genuine selves. They're men doing what men do, just trying to eke out a living, right? Not being pretentious, not putting on a role or playing a character, but just they're being men. And Salesman is a great film to check out. I would highly recommend it. This week, I also, because I've been so obsessed with the Criterion movies lately, I actually did go on. I got a subscription at the Criterion channel, which is like $10.99 a month or something like that. But they've got a lot of those movies on there, on the Criterion channel. You know, you go on there and uh, it's an interesting channel. You know, they don't only, only all, they, it's not that they only have the movies. They also have like special features that you might find on the disc, like commentaries, making ofs, things like that. Anyway, all right. It's good stuff. Check it out. Yeah. And with that being said, thank you so much for joining me here tonight on the Midnight Citizen Show. Wherever you are, if you're listening live or in the future or in the past, maybe you're a time traveler, I don't know. Thank you so much for joining me here tonight on the Midnight Citizen Show. Please remember, once again, you can find me at MikeBooty.com slash The Midnight Citizen. You can also listen on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. The Overnightscape Underground on SUG, O-N-S-U-G.com. And you can watch a live stream of the show on YouTube.com slash MikeBooty. You should do it, please. Thank you so much for supporting me. Until next time, please keep your eyes open. Mm-hmm.